Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. When will leaders rise? When will men stop their questionings and recognize a leader when he rises? When will they gather to his standard and say, We no longer question. We believe you. Lead on, for we are behind you. America needs men of that sort. Will you encourage them? You are your own saviors, and when you have come to the determination to save yourselves, you will know your leader the moment you meet him, for you will find he is of your sort and of your purpose. Woodrow Wilson, speaking to the Princeton Club of Chicago, May 1910. It is a great day for New Jersey and a great day for the nation when a man like Woodrow Wilson comes forward to help reclaim and vivify our political life. The New York Evening Post, September 16, 1910. The legislature adjourned yesterday morning at 3 o'clock with its work done. I got absolutely everything I strove for and more besides. Everyone, the papers included, are saying that none of it could have been done if it had not been for my influence and tact and hold upon the people. Be that as it may, the thing was done, and the result was as complete a victory as has ever been won, I venture to say, in the history of the country. I wrote the platform, I had the measures formulated to my mind, I kept the pressure of opinion constantly on the legislature, and the program was carried out to its last detail. The strain has been immense, but the reward is great. I am, of course, exceedingly tired, but I am quietly and deeply happy that I should have been of just the kind of service I wish to be to those who elected and trusted me. I can look them in the face like a servant who has kept faith and done all that was in him, given every power he possessed, to them and their affairs. There could be no deeper source of satisfaction and contentment. Republicans have resorted to my office for counsel and advice almost as freely as Democrats, and with several of them I have established relations almost of affection. Otherwise, I do not believe that the extraordinary thing that happened could possibly have come about. For all four of the great administration measures passed the Senate without a single dissenting voice. The newspaper men seem dazed. They do not understand how such things could happen. I am certainly in training for almost anything that may come to me by way of public tasks. There are serious times ahead. It daunts me to think of the possibility of my playing an influential part in them. There is no telling what deep waters may be ahead of me. The forces of greed and the forces of justice and humanity are about to grapple for a bout in which men will spend all the life that is in them. God grant I may have strength enough to count, to tip the balance in the unequal and tremendous struggle. 
Governor Woodrow Wilson, letter to Mary A. Hurlbert, April 23rd, 1911. Greetings, everybody. CJ here, Anarchy's smoothest of smooth operators. Woodrow Wilson's tenure as the 34th governor of New Jersey often gets pretty short shrift in biographies of him, and for some understandable reasons. He only held the job for two years, from January of 1911 through March of 1913, when, of course, he left in order to be sworn in as the 28th president of the United States. It was also very clear to everyone at the time and to everyone who's ever studied Woodrow Wilson ever since that being governor of New Jersey was never in and of itself a major goal for Woodrow Wilson. That he and virtually everybody else at the time understood that this was just a stepping stone or a launch pad to get him a little bit of a real-world political resume so that he could run for president in 1912. That said, it was an important and very revealing part of his life and career, and not just because it ended up serving its purpose of setting him up to run for president. He also, in those two years, got a lot done in terms of getting much of his wish list and legislative agenda run through the New Jersey state government. So from a pure effectiveness standpoint, he was quite effective. Now, if you happen to think that much of what he was doing was bad, that isn't necessarily a compliment. But his time as New Jersey governor also revealed a lot about what the man really wanted to do with political office and the skills and tactics he would bring to bear in that role that would enable him to get so much done there. And to get even more done, of course, as president, of course, again, from my perspective, very little of it positive. And also, like his time as president of Princeton, His brief time as governor of New Jersey revealed some of his personality traits that would sometimes get in his own way, and that reveal him to be, pardon my French, a very self-righteous but often hypocritical prick. And we've already seen instances of this throughout this series so far, and we'll doubtless see it many, many more times in future installments once we start covering his actual time in the White House. So anyway... Let's go ahead and blast off into the story of Woodrow Wilson's first few years as a politician.
I'm going to take a step back chronologically from where we left off in the last kind of chronobiographical Wilson episode. Which, just to remind you, since it's been quite a while since I put that one out, this would have been, I think, episode two in the Wilson series. It left off with him basically deciding to leave the presidency of Princeton in 1910. So I'm going to drop the needle back in time a little bit before then. In order to talk in more detail about something I've already mentioned a little bit, which is the transition phase, particularly during Wilson's last few years as president of Princeton, when he was starting to seriously look at politics and think about leaving academia for it. Because it wasn't like he just suddenly flipped a switch in 1910. So Wilson had expressed the occasional current events political opinion during the first few years of his presidency at Princeton. For example, in 1903, when the country was still somewhat debating whether taking over the Philippines and holding them by force was a good thing, Wilson had weighed in saying, quote, I am of the class of men who are described as imperialists, end quote. But he also said that he had, quote, an intense sympathy with the men on the other side, end quote by which I don't think he meant the Filipinos, I think he meant American leaders and commentators who were expressing anti-imperial points of view. Wilson also continued to speak ill of William Jennings Bryan, who himself had become much more anti-imperialist from 1900 onward, and Wilson continued to speak ill of the populist movement both inside and outside of the Democratic Party in general. For example, during this time period, Wilson wrote to a friend about Brian that, quote, The man has no brains. It is a great pity that a man with his power of leadership should have no mental rudder, end quote. Now, Wilson's timing with starting to turn towards politics was coincidental with the Democratic Party bigwigs beginning to try to shop around for new potential presidential candidates. William Jennings Bryan and his supporters had dominated the National Democratic Party since 1896, and Bryan ran for president that year, as well as in 1900, and then once more in 1908, and he lost all three times. That one election during that time period he was not nominated for was 1904, when the Democrats had nominated a bourbon, or more kind of Grover Cleveland conservative-style Democrat, a guy named Alton Parker, but he had lost pretty handily to Teddy Roosevelt in the general election. So this is what is known as the Fourth Party System era in American political history, and one of its characteristics was that Republicans dominated most of the country outside of the South and a few areas of the West, which basically meant the Democrats could dominate only in the less populous parts of the country, and as a result, during the Fourth Party System era, which is usually dated from 1896 to 1932, the Republicans tended to win the White House easily and overwhelmingly most of the time, with Woodrow Wilson himself being the only Democrat to make it in during that 36-year period. And as we'll see when we get to Wilson's first presidential campaign in 1912, he really only won that one because of a wild-card monkey wrench thrown into the machinery in the form of Teddy Roosevelt's Bull Moose campaign. During the time of the Democratic Party National Convention in the summer of 1908, at which for the third time William Jennings Bryan would get the nomination, Woodrow Wilson was alone 
on a vacation, this time to the British Isles, again in part to try to recoup from the health problems he kept having on and off. While Wilson was in the UK, he rode around Scotland on a bicycle, and one of the places he visited was the birthplace of Thomas Carlyle. Wilson was a big fan of the great man theory of history, of which Carlyle was one of the main exponents. In Carlyle's book, On Heroes, Hero Worship, and the Heroic in History, Carlyle had said, quote, The history of the world is but the biography of great men. End quote. And Wilson himself definitely agreed, and had said things like, quote, Men are as clay in the hands of the consummate leader. End quote. And of the U.S. presidency, he had written, quote, His is the only national voice in affairs. Let him once win the admiration and confidence of the country, and no other single force can withstand him. No combination of forces will easily overpower him. He is the representative of no constituency, but of the whole people. His office is anything he has the sagacity and force to make it. End quote. So, you probably remember me sharing a lot of that type of stuff in Woodrow Wilson Part 4. And obviously, Wilson would, in just a handful of years, get his chance to try to be a great man as President of the United States. Also, while in Scotland, Wilson visited a castle in the Highlands that Andrew Carnegie owned. While Wilson was staying there, he got to hang out a little bit with the Carnegies and with some other elite guests who were there at the time. Wilson asked Carnegie for a $3.5 million donation for his quad plan at Princeton, which you may recall from, I think, Wilson Episode 2 was an ongoing controversy within the Princeton University administration and trustee milieu. But Carnegie did not make the donation that Wilson was asking for. Now, while Wilson was overseas, there was talk among some Democratic Party bigwigs at the convention of possibly nominating Woodrow Wilson as Bryan's VP candidate in 1908. But Wilson didn't want that, and he had even left a written statement with his brother-in-law Stockton Axon back in the U.S., saying that he would refuse to be considered for the VP spot in case it looked like he might be nominated for VP, because Wilson already had a sense that this might be a possibility. But there just weren't enough Wilson supporters at the Democratic National Convention in 1908 for him to get the VP nomination anyway. Instead, William Jennings Bryan made his third run for president with John Kern of Indiana as his VP candidate. And Bryan went down to his third, final, and worst defeat of his three presidential campaigns, this time losing to William Howard Taft. Bryan only won 43% of the popular vote and only got about one-third of the Electoral College. After this defeat, more and more people in the Democratic Party hierarchy at the time were getting desperate to try and wrestle control of the party away from Bryan and the Bryanites. And one of the ringleaders of this movement within the party was a guy named George Harvey, and more on him in a moment. But Harvey had a real liking for Woodrow Wilson at the time, and a few other party elite types did as well, and some of them had been talking up Wilson as a possible future Democratic presidential candidate quite a bit behind the scenes for years. And after Bryan's defeat in 1908 in the general election, they really stepped up their game you know, trying to start sort of like a whispering campaign. And many of these men, including Harvey, were media kingpins, and so could use their publishing empires 
to start to create a buzz around Woodrow Wilson. And they had a particular kind of set of attributes they were looking for that Wilson seemed to fit almost perfectly. Historian H.W. Brands writes this of what the Democratic Party leaders were looking for in a presidential candidate after 1908. Quote, One young enough to have missed the Civil War, one with a national reputation, although not necessarily a reputation acquired in the practice of politics, and one with Southern connections, but not so closely identified with the South as to tempt the Republicans to wave the bloody shirt one more time. End quote. Waving the bloody shirt, in case you don't know, refers to the Republican Party's frequent campaign strategy in the years immediately following the Civil War of kind of playing up the conflict in Lincoln and the Democrats' ties to the South and all that kind of stuff in order to get a lot of votes, particularly from Union veterans who, of course, were quite numerous. So Wilson seemed to fulfill these specs pretty nicely. And on top of that, he'd been publicly and privately criticizing Bryan and the populist movement for years, which was even more music to the ears of people like George Harvey and other Bourbon Democratic Party bigwigs. Now, these Bourbon Democrats, I don't think at the time quite yet understood what progressivism really was and or the degree to which Wilson was a progressive. I think they were still just thinking in terms of a binary within the Democratic Party, just in terms of populist versus bourbon. And so I think just their default assumption would be that anyone who's critical of Bryan and populist must be a bourbon, must be like a Grover Cleveland type Democrat. And they didn't realize that progressivism was rapidly becoming this third force within the party, a force that was highly critical of many aspects of populism and of Brian himself, but which was not that way because it held to some sort of old-school Jefferson-Jackson idea of what the Democratic Party ought to be about. So, taking a step back a couple of years again to illustrate this evolution a little bit more, Wilson had started in the first years of the 20th century to speak more and more frequently in venues and on topics that had to do with contemporary politics and current issues. And again, this shows you he was already kind of thinking about politics as a new career. So in 1906, he spoke at the, I'm not 100% sure how to pronounce this, to be honest with you. I don't know if it's pronounced Lotos, Lotos, I'm not sure, L-O-T-O-S. So the Lotos or Lotos Club in New York City which was a private gentleman's club that had been founded in 1870 in order to bring together intellectuals, artists, and writers, but which also would be attended by certain members of the kind of financial power elite as well. And it was there that newspaper editor George Brinton McClellan Harvey, a very powerful Democratic Party bigwig, heard Wilson speak for the first time took an immediate liking to him, and began talking him up as a potential future Democratic Party presidential candidate. In fact, after Wilson's speech at the Lottos Club, Harvey, who I guess was sort of like the host or the MC of the event, gave some closing remarks, saying, quote, As one of a considerable number of Democrats who have become tired of voting Republican tickets, 
it is with a sense almost of rapture that I contemplate even the remotest possibility of casting a ballot for the president of Princeton University to become president of the United States. End quote. So, like I've said, Harvey was one of these conservative or bourbon Democrats who had favored Democrats like Grover Cleveland. These were Democrats who were fiscally conservative, who wanted a fairly limited government, had kind of classically liberal Jeffersonian sorts of ideas of limited government and all that. So Harvey was against Bryan and the populists, and he had actually voted for McKinley as the lesser evil relative to Bryan in both the 1896 and 1900 elections. And when Wilson returned home from New York after speaking at this event, his brother-in-law Stockton Axon happened to be visiting. Axon said, quote, I see Colonel Harvey has nominated you for the presidency, end quote. To which Wilson's wife Ellen said, quote, Was he joking? End quote. And Wilson replied, quote, He did not seem to be. End quote. Harvey, by the way, is a very interesting character. He started off as a journalist and then left that to get involved in the railroad industry and some other investments, was very successful and made a fortune, and then went back into print media as an editor and owner of the North American Review. And he also purchased Harper's Weekly magazine and Harper and Brothers Publishing, as well as some other publications. George Harvey was J.P. Morgan connected, by the way. All of the exact details of the relationship between Harvey and Morgan I've not been able to nail down 100% as of this recording, but basically what it looks like is that the previous owner of Harper's Weekly had gotten into debt to the house of Morgan and couldn't pay it back. And then eventually Harvey ended up taking over the publication with J.P. Morgan's blessing and with his financial backing. One historian I've read on this even refers to Harper's under Harvey's ownership as a Morgan mouthpiece. Harvey was the first major sponsor of Wilson's political career within the Democratic Party elite, but his love of Wilson didn't last very long into Wilson's presidency of the United States. Because once Wilson got into the White House, the conservative Harvey finally realized that Wilson was a wolf in sheep's clothing that he was a big government progressive who could speak in conservative-sounding idioms when he wanted to, but that he was very much not an old-school Cleveland-style Democrat. Not long into Wilson's presidency, Harvey became strongly disillusioned with him, and eventually, once Wilson's foreign policy started to get more pro-war, Harvey was turned off by that as well. Another charming aspect of the Bourbon Democrats is, in general, they weren't always 100% consistent across the board, but in general, they tended to favor a pretty restrained, relatively non-interventionist foreign policy. So, Harvey deserves a lot of blame for helping to launch Wilson's political career, but on the other hand, he did eventually realize the error of his ways and very publicly repented. In fact, in 1916, Harvey again went with the Republicans instead and supported Republican candidate Charles Evans Hughes against Wilson, although Wilson would win re-election in that campaign. Then in 1920, Harvey again supported the Republican candidate, this time Warren Harding, who would win that election. In thanks, 
President Harding would end up making George Harvey the U.S. ambassador to Britain in the early 1920s. But back in the period of about 1906 to 1912 or so, Wilson still sounded, at least in many of his political speeches, like he still had some amount of a bourbon Democrat streak in him sufficiently that Harvey thought he was a Democrat more in the mold of somebody like Cleveland. You may recall I've mentioned in previous episodes that Wilson had actually voted for the kind of bourbon-slash-pretty-damned-libertarian-and-laissez-faire National Democratic Party ticket in 1896, rather than voting either for Bryan or for McKinley. And that National Democratic ticket was definitely in line with the beliefs of somebody like George Harvey, even though Harvey in that election chose to throw a vote instead to McKinley, probably because he felt like McKinley had much more possibility of winning than did the so-called National Democratic Party ticket, which was in that election a rather minor sort of third-party type ticket. Really what it seems to come down to was that Harvey wanted Wilson to be a bourbon Democrat. Because Wilson seemed to be charming and a good speaker and had some political skills, even though he was new to politics, and because Harvey simply wanted someone who could retake control of the party from the Bryanite populace whom Harvey hated. So he was kind of Rorschaching what he wanted to believe onto Wilson, and basically listening only to Wilson's more conservative-sounding statements, while in his own mind, I guess, either ignoring Wilson's more progressive-sounding statements, which he did make plenty of those too, or perhaps he was believing that Wilson's progressive-sounding statements were just campaign rhetoric and that his real beliefs were the conservative-sounding stuff. Of course, in reality, the exact opposite was the case. It was the more conservative-sounding parts of Wilson's rhetoric that were designed simply to ensure he'd get the votes of a lot of bourbon Democrats, while his more progressive-sounding statements were actually his true beliefs. And anyone who went and read through a pile of Wilson's academic work, as I've done, all that work which was written back before he was trying to run for office, if you went and read all that, you would know what Wilson's true beliefs were. And that despite the fact that he sometimes sounded like a Grover Cleveland Democrat, he really wasn't. But of course, somebody like George Harvey, I doubt, went and read a whole bunch of dense books and treatises from Wilson's academic career. If he read anything Wilson had written at all, it was probably some of his lighter, more popular sorts of articles and essays, in which he didn't always clearly reveal his staunch progressivism. Anyway, a little later on that same year, 1906, Wilson spoke at the annual Jefferson Day Dinner held by the National Democratic Club of New York. And he'd already been invited to speak there even before his speech at the Lottos Club, where Harvey had started to talk him up for the presidency. In this speech, which I think I referred to a bit in the last Wilson episode dealing with his ideology and academic work, Wilson did his best to try to draw parallels between himself and Thomas Jefferson by emphasizing Jefferson's reputation as sort of an intellectual and as a writer, and to basically say that he, Wilson, wanted the Democratic Party of his own day to adapt Jefferson's ideals to the new era. Notice the progressive notion of changing and evolving with the times. Wilson actually rejected much of the specifics of Jefferson's ideology, the actual content of it, such as strict construction of the Constitution, minimalist central government, 
pretty free market laissez-faire economics, pretty minimal government intervention into society and the economy, and so on. Wilson didn't agree with any of that. But in this speech, he was still able, with a straight face, and apparently without any sense of contradiction, to imply that his brand of Democratic Party politics was actually the heir of Jeffersonianism, by basically arguing that if you adapted Jefferson and Jeffersonian ideals to the early 20th century's conditions, you would get progressivism. In his speech, he said, quote, We do not return to Jefferson to borrow policies, but to renew ideals. End quote. This sort of ideological rhetorical gymnastics seems to be the way that modern-day progressive Democrats still, on occasion, might try to link themselves to Thomas Jefferson or even Andrew Jackson, for that matter, despite the fact that they're opposed to somebody like Jefferson on virtually every issue, not just because he happened to be a slave owner, but in terms of the content of his ideology. Right? Modern-day American progressive Democrats, setting aside the whole slavery thing, are against Thomas Jefferson on virtually every issue. But they'll still occasionally, when it's convenient, draw connections between themselves and Jefferson. Now, it's true that with modern-day identity politics being what they are, definitely far, far fewer Democrats these days want to make any explicit connections to Jefferson whatsoever. But up until pretty recently, it was still common. I can remember many Democrats in the 1990s and early 2000s still making occasional comments about their ties to Jefferson in sort of their political lineage. But if you actually dig down to any amount of the content of Jefferson's actual political beliefs, it's got nothing to do with, and in most cases is diametrically opposed to, progressivism. I believe it was right after this Jefferson Day dinner speech that George Harvey flat out asked Wilson if he would accept the Democratic Party's presidential nomination if the party offered it to him in 1912. And Wilson responded cagely and simply that he would give it, quote, very serious consideration, end quote. And with that, Harvey began to seriously push the idea of nominating Wilson for president to other Democratic Party movers and shakers. Some worried that Wilson might be too independent because he hadn't been working in practical politics. Others thought that his inexperience and relative outsider newcomer status would actually make him more prone to being manipulated by powerful party bigwigs. By the way, historically, the latter seems to be much more common in regard to sort of newcomer outsider politicians. In other words, that they're often even more manipulable and pliable than longtime party establishment hacks because they end up being much more reliant on advisors, and insider party hack types are very good at insinuating themselves into the inner circles of newcomers who manage to get elected to high office. So, you could look at, for example, Jimmy Carter's administration being infiltrated by all these establishment types, or you can look at what happened with Trump's administration, and despite the fact that he's like the ultimate outsider to politics and a monkey wrench thrown into the system, still somehow, a lot of the people he ends up surrounding himself with are a whole bunch of Republican Party establishment hacks and neocons and stuff, even though Trump's own rhetoric goes against those people. 
So yeah, the types of people that are good at playing the role of men behind the curtain, the types of guys who play the role of Jafar, her Grima Wormtongue, they love it when an outsider somehow manages to get elected president. When Wilson returned from vacationing in the UK in October 1906, which he had vacationed to the UK, this time with his wife, while he was recovering from that stroke that I mentioned a long time ago in a previous episode that had caused temporary blindness in his left eye. Wilson came home to discover that, largely due to the initiative of George Harvey, he, Wilson, was being talked about in the press as a possible candidate for a U.S. Senate seat from New Jersey. Now, this was still pre-1913, when U.S. Senators were not directly elected by the voters of their state, but instead were chosen by their state legislators. The Democratic candidates for New Jersey legislature pledged themselves to support Wilson for Senate if they won. But the Democrats ended up not taking over the legislature, so they didn't get to pick New Jersey Senator anyway. Now, Harvey, as an astute political insider, probably knew that the Democrats were not poised to take over the New Jersey legislature that year. And he was probably just putting Wilson's name out there, again, to kind of test the waters within the New Jersey Democratic Party, and to sort of just start putting Wilson's name out there into the ether, to kind of get that whispering campaign going even more. Now, fast forward a bit to early 1910, when Wilson was really kind of at his wit's end with Princeton and was getting close to deciding to quit. In January of 1910, George Harvey had lunch with a man named James Smith Jr., who was known by the nickname Sugar Jim, and who was the top Democratic Party machine boss in the state of New Jersey. Harvey was pushing Woodrow Wilson as a gubernatorial candidate. Sugar Jim expressed some reservations that Wilson was too unknown and inexperienced but Harvey said that this would make Wilson more appealing to average voters, who were at the time in New Jersey, as in many other places, in kind of an anti-boss, anti-machine, pro-reform frame of mind. Smith and other party bosses in New Jersey became convinced as well that Wilson's greenness as a politician would also make him especially beholden to, and therefore dependent on, and malleable by, the party machine and its bosses. As Scott Berg sums up their thinking, quote, They believed Wilson's inexperience would require his relying on them to run the government while he provided an air of progressivism and propriety. He would be the ideal puppet, end quote. Several days later, at another meeting, Smith told Harvey that he would back Woodrow Wilson for the Democratic nomination for governor. Smith also told Harvey that he publicly would state that if the New Jersey state legislature, which again, at the time still would be who decided the U.S. senators from the state, that if the Democrats did manage to take over the New Jersey legislature, he, Sugar Jim Smith, would not throw his hat into the running to be chosen as one of New Jersey senators. The reason for this was strategic. As Scott Berg describes it, the idea was, quote, Wilson would appear to be his own man, the nominal head of the Democratic Party in New Jersey, end quote. So in other words, 
the corrupt bosses and machine politicians were paving the way for Wilson while trying to hide that that was in fact what they were doing. In March of 1910, George Harvey and his wife had dinner with the Wilsons. During the evening, Harvey and Wilson spoke privately, and Harvey basically said that he could pull the strings to get Wilson nominated for governor, in his words, quote, "...on a silver platter, without you turning a hand to obtain it, and without any requirement or suggestion of any pledge whatsoever." End quote. He asked Wilson for his response, which was, quote, "...I should regard it as my duty to give the matter very serious consideration." End quote. Not long after that Wilson spoke out of all things, the New York State Bankers Association at the Waldorf Astoria. Many of the top New York City banksters were there, including the kingpin J.P. Morgan himself, who actually sat next to Wilson. The main topic of discussion, which was addressed by then-Treasury Secretary Franklin McVeigh before Wilson spoke, was so-called currency reform which was basically power elite code at the time for putting in place a central bank in the U.S. that would pretend to be some sort of progressive reform on behalf of the general public, but in fact would be a banking and currency system designed by and for the big banksters themselves. In terms of timeline, this event in the spring of 1910 was after the 1908 Aldrich-Vreeland bill, which established the National Monetary Commission to get the ball rolling on the project of creating a central bank. But before the secret Jekyll Island meeting at which the Federal Reserve was actually designed by the banksters, which occurred in late 1910, and which you may know all about if you've read something like The Creature from Jekyll Island. Random interesting side note. Treasury Secretary McVeigh was, like his boss, President William Howard Taft, a Yale Skull and Bones alumnus. Now, when Wilson spoke at this event, he said, quote, The basis of banking, like the basis of the rest of life, is moral in its character, not financial. End quote. Wilson went on in this speech to accuse the New York bankers of being too fixated on their own part of the country and their own self-interest and not caring enough about the rest of the country. Now, you would think a bunch of New York City bankers wouldn't want to hear that sort of thing. And at the end of Wilson's speech, initially there was silence. And then big applause. And at that very moment, J.P. Morgan himself rose and heartily shook Woodrow Wilson's hand. Now, you tell me what's going on there. If they think Wilson is a genuine threat to their interests, why are they clapping and shaking his hand? By the way, these sorts of characters would never have invited William Jennings Bryan to come speak at their association. And they certainly wouldn't have given him applause and a hearty handshake from J.P. Morgan if by some miracle he ever did speak at one of these things. In June 1910, the month after the Wyman bequest finished off what remained of Wilson's chances to control the location of the graduate school and try to democratize Princeton, that whole controversy you may recall from a few episodes back in this series. Sugar Jim Smith told George Harvey that time was running out, that he could still get Wilson the nomination for governor, but he needed assurance that Wilson would definitely accept it. So Harvey invited Wilson to come to dinner at his house, at which Smith would be in attendance, as well as Henry Watterson, who was editor of the Louisville Courier-Journal, 
And Watterson's presence at this dinner, by the way, is just one of many pieces of evidence to show that even Democratic Party bigwigs outside of New Jersey were thinking of Wilson at that time as a presidential contender in the near future, and that to a large extent the governorship of New Jersey was never seen by these people, nor by Wilson himself, as an end in itself, but just a brief stepping stone to the White House. Now, according to one of Wilson's daughters, he was still wavering a little bit at that time on whether to take the plunge. Wilson, who had just arrived with his family for a vacation in Old Lyme, Connecticut, intended to go to this dinner with George Harvey, but he was unable to find a train that would take him to Harvey's home at the Jersey Shore in time to make the dinner. However, a friend of Harvey's took a train to New London, Connecticut, and then hired a cab to take him to Old Lyme, where he found the Wilsons preparing to go to church. Instead, Wilson got in the cab and headed back to New London to catch a train down to the Jersey Shore. He made it to the dinner at Harvey's, where he made a favorable impression on both Sugar Jim Smith and Henry Watterson, and apparently they even spoke a little bit about higher office than just the governorship. When Wilson returned to his family in Old Lyme, he told his wife and daughters that the party bosses had said they'd get him the nomination if he wanted it, quote, absolutely free. No pledges of any sort were to be demanded, and Smith had further agreed that in no circumstances would he, meaning Smith, run for the Senate, end quote. Then Wilson added, quote, Colonel Watterson says it will inevitably lead to the presidency, end quote. When Wilson returned to Princeton after his vacation in Connecticut, he met with those who still supported him at the university, men such as Cleveland Dodge, and asked what they thought about him getting into politics. And basically, they told him he needed to follow his own judgment and conscience. Amusingly, around this time, William Randolph Hearst's New York Journal newspaper, which was a Democratic Party but very anti-Wilson paper, ran the headline, quote, Wall Street to put up W. Wilson for president, end quote. Even though Wilson still had not officially announced that he was throwing his hat into the ring for governor. In June, Wilson wrote in a letter to an associate of Jim Smith, trying to allay the fears of some party bosses that Wilson might use them to get elected and then throw them under the bus and build his own political machine. Independent of them. Wilson wrote, quote, I would be perfectly willing to assure Mr. Smith that I would not, if elected governor, set about fighting and breaking down the existing Democratic organization and replacing it with one of my own. The last thing I should think of would be building up a machine of my own. End quote. On July 12th, Wilson had a meeting with a bunch of New Jersey Democratic Party leaders. Sugar Jim Smith himself did not attend, but an in-law and associate of his named James Nugent did. Nugent was the top party boss in Newark, and at the time was also the state Democratic Party chairman. At this meeting, the party bosses were trying to figure out, still, if Wilson would be loyal and malleable to them, 
whether or not he'd be a team player, so to speak. One party leader supposedly asked Wilson some version of this type of question, and Wilson responded, quote, I have always been a believer in party organizations. If I were elected governor, I should be very glad to consult with the leaders of the Democratic organization, end quote. Now, this answer was supposedly a little less of a full-on promise to be a sock puppet than some of the men there really wanted to hear, but it was enough to at least satisfy most of them sufficiently that Woodrow Wilson would play ball. Soon after this, Wilson put out a statement to the press saying that he wasn't a candidate for governor, but that if the party delegates at the convention nominated him, he would accept it. So it's this whole, you know, playing hard to get type of thing that was pretty common back then in politics where you'd say, oh, I'm not trying to run for such and such. But, you know, if everybody at the convention demands it, I'll go along with it. Reluctantly, of course. So in mid-September, the state Democratic Party convention took place. At the convention, ironically, it was the progressive delegates who were opposed to Wilson and it was the old-school party boss politicians who were either not that ideological or who were, if anything, more or less bourbons, right, conservatives. They were the ones that were largely supporting Wilson. On the first ballot of the convention, Wilson got 749 votes, which was more than two times as many as the next runner-up, and quite sufficient to get Wilson the nomination. But they went ahead and held one more ballot to try and get unification, and they did. On the second ballot, Wilson won all the delegates, unanimously. A car was sent to Princeton, where Wilson was at the time, to fetch him and bring him to the convention. At the convention, when the chairman announced that Wilson was on his way, he referred to him as, quote, the next president of the United States, end quote. So on September 25th, 1910, Wilson arrived at the State Democratic Party convention and delivered his acceptance speech, officially launching his campaign for governor and his political career for real. In the speech, he seemed to set aside his Manichaean rhetoric briefly, saying, quote, Government is not a warfare of interests. We shall not gain our ends by heat and bitterness, which makes it impossible to think either calmly or fairly. Government is a matter of common counsel, and everyone must come into the consultation with the purpose to yield to the general view, the view which seems most nearly to correspond with common interests. End quote. And right here is one of my big issues with progressivism, all versions of it, even that version that's espoused by who I've considered like the better progressives, by which I mean the ones like Robert La Follette, who weren't total corporate tools and who were, when it came to it, anti-war and pro-civil liberties. Even they believe that there is such a thing as the general view and the common interests and the public good and the general good and all these sorts of things, which I just think are horseshit. Anyway, Wilson continued in his speech, quote, We are witnessing a renaissance of public spirit, a reawakening of sober public opinion, a revival of the power of the people, the beginning of an age of thoughtful reconstruction that makes our thought hark back to the great age in which democracy was set up in America. Is not our own ancient party, the party disciplined and made ready for this great task? 
shall we not forget ourselves in making it the instrument of righteousness for the state and for the nation? There he ended his speech, at least initially. But the delegates went wild, begging for him to speak a bit more. So he continued, now improvising extemporaneously. Quote, America is not distinguished so much by its wealth and material power as by the fact that it was born with an ideal, a purpose to serve mankind. And all mankind has sought her as a haven of equal justice. When I look upon the American flag before me, I think sometimes that it is made of parchment and blood. The white in it stands for parchment, the red in it signifies blood. Parchment, on which was written the rights of men, and blood that was spilled to make these rights real. Let us devote the Democratic Party to the recovery of these rights. Now, as you may recall from the last episode, Wilson didn't really believe in rights. But the man knew how to give a dramatic speech when he had to. After finishing these remarks, Wilson was swarmed by supportive and admiring delegates, and the police actually had to come clear away for him and help him get out of the building and into a car that was waiting to take him home. There was a young state legislator at the convention who was one of the many there who were very excited by Wilson's nomination and his acceptance speech. An Irish Catholic and ardent progressive Democrat named Joseph Tumulty. In part because of his knowledge of New Jersey politics and his sharing of Wilson's progressivism, Tumulty would quickly become one of Wilson's main campaign advisors, perhaps the most important for Wilson's gubernatorial campaign. And once Wilson became governor, Tumulty would serve as his private secretary and in that role also functioned essentially as chief of staff and top advisor. Tumulty would continue this role all the way through Wilson's time in the White House, meaning that he served as Wilson's secretary and kind of right-hand man for a full decade, from 1911 to 1921. At the time Wilson was preparing to run for governor, New Jersey was widely considered one of the worst, if not the worst, States in the U.S. when it came to kind of corporate and political corruption of the old school sort. New Jersey also, perhaps not coincidentally, had some of the most pro-big corporation laws in the nation at the time, which was why companies like Standard Oil had chosen to be incorporated and based there. There was, at the time Wilson was getting ready to run for governor, a growing progressive reform movement in the state some of which was in the Democratic Party and some of which was in the Republican Party, that was rising in reaction to this overall state of affairs. Former Senator James Smith Jr., known as Sugar Jim, was perhaps the biggest machine politician boss in the state in the early 20th century. Smith was an Irish Catholic originally from Newark. He had started off in the dry goods business and later branched out into many different business enterprises, including banking, insurance, and shipbuilding. And eventually he came to own two newspapers. He had served a single term in the U.S. Senate as a Democrat from 1893 to 1899, during which time he had shepherded through a tariff that was very favorable to U.S. sugar interests. 
a commodity in which he just happened to be heavily invested at the time, and this is, of course, where he earned his nickname. Sugar Jim and guys like him were, like many American politicians then and now, proud of their anti-intellectualism. For example, during a meeting of party leaders at Wilson's house four days after his nomination for governor, according to one of Wilson's daughters, Sugar Jim looked at all the books in Wilson's study and said, Do you read all these books, Professor? To which Wilson responded, Not every day. Sugar Jim's son-in-law, a guy named James Nugent, was his right-hand man and was his number two in terms of controlling the state Democratic Party. Smith, Nugent, and the other old-school party bosses thought that Wilson would just be a sock puppet and that he'd give the progressives the appearance of independence while in reality just dancing to their tune. These Democratic Party bosses would spend almost $120,000 on Wilson's campaign, which was an exorbitant amount of money in 1910 for a governor's race. According to observers' accounts, Wilson began campaigning kind of stiff and awkward in his speeches and in his interactions with the voters, but he seems to have quickly gotten used to it and loosened up a bit and actually began to charm people. And as I've mentioned previously, he'd been mostly well-liked by students when he was a professor, and he did often have the ability to be charming and humorous when he wanted to, or when he was comfortable. Despite his tendency toward, and his reputation for, self-righteousness and standoffishness. In his campaign, Wilson very strategically refrained from specifically calling out corruption on the part of his own party's bosses, who were at that very time funding his campaign and campaigning very hard for him. So most of the time when he denounced corruption, he just sort of did it generally and abstractly, and the only times he would call it out specifically would, of course, be in regard to the corruption of Republican bosses in New Jersey. Though at the same time, he also very strategically made sure to regularly reach out to the progressive reform faction within the state Republican Party, trying to split off some progressive Republicans from the Republican Party establishment. This was strategically a very wise move, because in New Jersey at the time, progressive Republicans were actually more numerous than progressive Democrats. These progressive insurgents within the Republican Party in New Jersey were known as New Idea Republicans. And they actually succeeded in getting a moderately progressive Republican named Vivian Lewis nominated on the Republican ticket for governor, and so this would be Wilson's opponent in the general election. Lewis endorsed several major progressive reform ideas, but he also expressed a limited idea of the powers and the role he envisioned for himself as governor should he win, and he voiced some respect for the idea of strict constitutional limits of his office should he become governor, and in particular the separation between executive and legislative branches. He said things such as promising that he wouldn't, quote, coerce the legislature into subordinating its judgment to my judgment, end quote. Again, basically articulating steadfast support for separation of powers and all that. 
When Wilson heard about this statement by Lewis, he responded by saying, quote, I cannot be that kind of constitutional governor. If you elect me, you will elect an unconstitutional governor. End quote. Yes, he actually said that. He actually explicitly promised to break the spirit of the separation of powers and checks and balances and to outflank Lewis from the left. By basically promising to be at least as progressive as Lewis, but to have much less caution or hesitance or sense of limitation when it came to using his power as governor. Now, politicians at all levels throughout American history have often been willing to break the spirit and sometimes even the letter of constitutional government whenever they find it convenient. But what's really chilling and revealing to me about Wilson's statement here is that he's actually saying it out loud. In fact, he's promising to do it. In other words, he doesn't even feel that he needs to pay lip service to constitutional propriety. But then again, as we know from previous episodes, he really thought that constitutions shouldn't have any fixed meaning anyway. So a statement like this is actually him being honest and consistent in regard to his own ideology. He was following his own version of a higher law. As he himself said, quote, I shall not be a constitutional governor, because there is one thing that a man has to obey over and above the state constitution, and that is his own constitution. And although I try to be courteous to the men I differ from, I am always sure they are wrong. End quote. Actually, he was not always courteous to those who disagreed with him. But he certainly was always sure that they were wrong. Now, Lewis was the Republican candidate for governor, but the real leader of the New Idea Republicans in New Jersey was a state politician named George Record. Early in the campaign, Record attacked Wilson for having been nominated and backed by the corrupt Democratic Party bosses like Sugar Jim Smith. And he basically questioned Wilson's commitment to progressivism and his bona fides. Record actually challenged Wilson to a debate on state issues. Now, keep in mind, Record was not the Republican candidate for governor. But Wilson said he would debate him if the Republican Party itself would endorse Record as their official spokesman. But the party wouldn't do this, so Wilson wouldn't debate Record in person. However, Wilson said he would respond in writing to any questions that Record wanted to pose to him in writing. On October 17th, Record sent a public letter with 19 questions for Woodrow Wilson on a host of issues, ranging from workman's comp to primaries to election reform and a whole bunch of other state reform issues of the day, including a question that asked whether Wilson acknowledged the existence of political party machines, and if so, what he proposed to do about it, and in particular, what he proposed to do about the corrupt bosses within his own party. One week later, Wilson sent a detailed public letter of his own in response, in which he quoted each of Record's questions with his responses to each underneath. To most of Record's questions, he basically answered yes, in terms of favoring this or that progressive reform measure. 
To some of them, he answered by saying that he wanted to go even further than what Record was proposing. The only of Record's questions to which he said no was to a question where Record asked him whether or not he, meaning Wilson, would require Democratic Party candidates for the legislature to pledge themselves to progressive reform and to opposing party bosses. Wilson said no to this question because he said it should be up to the voters to decide who to vote for or not to vote for, rather than for him to require some sort of pledge ahead of time. But Wilson was absolutely vehement on the question of the party boss system. Not only did he acknowledge its existence, but he strongly denounced it and said he was in favor of exposing it and breaking it up. When Record read Wilson's letter, he supposedly said, quote, That letter will elect Wilson governor. End quote. And Wilson really seems to have earned Record's respect. Years later, Record would say, quote, If he had been a small man, such a set of questions would have finished him off. But he had boldness and courage, and he could rise to a great emergency. End quote. By the way, during the public letter exchange with Record on October 20th, Wilson resigned his position as president of Princeton University. I'm not 100% sure of the details of this, because different sources portray it differently, with some painting it as the trustees really making it happen by somehow pressuring Wilson to resign, and in this version surprising Wilson, who expected to hold the job through the election. Other sources portray it more as Wilson surprising the board by resigning on his own initiative. And in this version, it was the trustees who had expected him to continue through the election. Either way, whether it was more his initiative or the board's, he resigned. The trustees actually offered to continue his salary for a while and to let him continue living in the president's residence for the time being. Wilson refused the salary, but remained at the president's residence for the next few months. The trustees also bestowed upon Wilson the honorary degree of Doctor of Laws. Now, these last few pieces of information make it seem to me like probably it was Wilson's initiative and decision to resign, and not the board pressuring him. But who knows for sure? Meanwhile, Wilson barnstormed the state during the last weeks of the campaign, speaking multiple times a day on most days, and he seems to have really warmed to it and gotten better at campaigning as it went on. He would often hit on the classic outsider change candidate themes, calling himself an amateur politician, and playing up the idea that as an outsider and newcomer to politics, he could be trusted not to be a tool of the good old boy bosses. Ever since his exchange of letters with Record, he got more and more comfortable with actually criticizing some of the bosses within his own party, although he wouldn't single them out by name. But when he would sort of generically talk trash about political party bosses, it seems that guys like Sugar Jim Smith and James Nugent didn't really mind or take it personally because they really believed it was just a campaign tactic by Wilson to win the reform vote, and that Wilson wasn't really serious about it. Wilson also occasionally hit on bigger national political themes. Of course, he'd been thinking about being president of the United States since before he even started running for governor. At this point, 
His more national-minded remarks were kind of vague and broad, but often smack of neoconism. This idea of America as the messianic redeemer nation who was going to change the world or whatever like that. For example, in a speech during the campaign, Wilson said that the destiny of the U.S. was, quote, that she shall do the thinking of the world. For America is not a piece of the surface of the earth. America is not merely a body of towns. America is an idea. America is an ideal. America is a vision. End quote. In his final campaign speech on November 5th, Wilson made his closing argument, saying, quote, We have begun a fight that it may be will take many a generation to complete. The fight against special privilege, but you know that men are not put into this struggle to go the path of ease. They are put into this world to go the path of pain and struggle. We have given our lives to the enterprise, and that is richer and the moral is greater. End quote. On November 8th, New Jersey voters cast their ballots. Woodrow Wilson won with 54% to Lewis's 43%, the second largest margin of victory in a New Jersey governor's race in the state's history to that time. Democrats also swept to the majority in the state assembly, which was the lower house of the legislature. But the Republicans managed to hold on to the state Senate. However, the margin of the Democrats' majority in the lower house would enable them to pick the next U.S. senator from New Jersey. However, New Jersey actually did have a non-binding primary for U.S. senators in 1910. And in this non-binding primary, the winner had been a populist Democrat. Not exactly a progressive, but a reformer and much closer to the progressives than he was to the old-line machine politicians. And by the way, Populists were mostly Westerners and Southerners, so this would have been a very rare one in New Jersey. But anyway, the guy in question was named James Martine, nicknamed Farmer Jim. So he won, but like I said, it was technically non-binding. And the choice of Senator for New Jersey, and the issue of who Wilson would back for it, would be a big deal very early in his governorship. Not only did Wilson win the governor's race in New Jersey that year, but overall the 1910 elections saw a lot of Democratic Party victories. The House of Representatives was taken over by the party for the first time in 18 years, and with a big majority, though the Republicans did manage to hold on to the Senate. Also, a lot of Democratic governors were elected, including in many states that at the time tended to be strongly Republican. States such as Massachusetts, Connecticut, New Jersey, Ohio, Indiana, Nebraska, and Colorado. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure this might have been the best the Democrats had done, overall, in any midterm election since before the Civil War. And the Democrats who were newly elected to office in 1910, meaning those who weren't simply incumbents hanging on to an office they'd already held before, seem to have been more progressive, as opposed to either populist or bourbon. After Wilson had won the election, but before he even got sworn in as governor, he began indicating that he would likely throw Sugar Jim Smith, James Nugent, and the other New Jersey Democratic Party bosses under the bus. These men who, 
Say what you will about their good old boy corruption had, after all, just played the crucial role in getting Wilson nominated and elected. For all their imperfections, these guys did have sort of a basic sense of honor and personal loyalty and reciprocity. After all, their political machine was built on it. And so, understandably, they were pissed that Wilson, as they saw it, had used them to get into office and then immediately started to betray them. Wilson, for his part, had always been pretty cagey in his statements to them before the election. Straddling the line, keeping things kind of cryptic, between saying he'd be their man and saying that he'd be independent. For a guy who had just gotten into politics, he was already a master of political doublespeak, of telling people enough of what they want to hear, that they'll kind of Rorschach onto it, but leaving yourself just enough kind of gray area and wiggle room that you can later tell people and tell them, and yourself with a straight face, that you technically didn't break your word and that you didn't say or do anything dishonest. By using the Democratic Party machine and leading its leaders on to get himself the office of governor of New Jersey, and then double-crossing the machine and throwing them all under the bus once in office, Wilson no doubt saw himself as something like a justified sinner. I mean, if he was just purely virtuous, shouldn't he have refused any money, any support, any endorsement, and so on from these corrupt bosses? If he was just so self-righteously opposed to everything they stood for? But that's not what he did. He played ball with them, he led them on, he took all their help and money gladly, all the while knowing that he was going to throw them under the bus once he was elected. According to Sugar Jim, Wilson, in the immediate aftermath of the election, called the non-binding primary vote for Senate a farce and called James Martin, the winner of it, a disgrace. Smith then threw his hat in the ring for the U.S. Senate seat that was now up for grabs. Wilson began to hear from party bigwigs like George Harvey that they wanted Sugar Jim Smith to get the Senate seat. But Wilson said that the people had clearly voted for reform and against political bosses. And so, even though he, Wilson, had issues with Martin, he felt compelled to go with the seeming will of the people and back Martin over Smith. Wilson even tried to get Harvey to get Smith to back out of contention for the Senate seat. On December 6th, Wilson went to Newark to see Smith at his home and tried to persuade him personally to bow out of the running for the Senate seat. Smith refused to do so. Instead, he asked that if Wilson wasn't willing to endorse him, could he just stay neutral on the issue and let the legislature decide? To which Wilson responded, quote, No, I shall actively oppose you with every honorable means in my power. End quote. He gave Smith an ultimatum. Smith had two days to officially bow out of contention, or he, Wilson, would make his opposition to Smith for Senate public. When Smith did not bow out after the two days, Wilson made good on his threat and issued a public statement saying that the will of the people in the non-binding primary should be respected and that therefore Martin should get the Senate seat. This is how Ray Stannard Baker, in the volume of his Woodrow Wilson Life and Letters, that deals with Wilson's time as governor, 
describes the two competing sets of political ethics, i.e. those of Wilson and those of the bosses. Quote, Machine politics is founded upon organization, and organization upon interest. You help me, and I will help you. Wilson's concern was with principles. He cared little for organization, and the whole business of political reward for service done to the organization was repugnant to him. The two codes are not only different, but antagonistic. It is easy to see the point of view of the clan loyal bosses. They had nominated Wilson, they were helping to conduct his campaign, they were contributing some of their own money, and relying on their friends the brewers and the corporations for still more, to elect him. According to their code, he must repay them not only with favors, but with submission. The dean of all the bosses, Richard Croker of Tammany Hall, succinctly expressed the code when he remarked a little later, referring to Wilson, quote, An ingrate in politics is no good. End quote. According to Wilson's code, on the other hand, politics was intensely impersonal. The idea, the principle, the service of the people generally was what counted. The individual and his interests mattered little. He hated personal issues always. All a man had to do was to be right, and his cause would prevail. End quote. Now, I've got to say, while I'm no admirer or fan of corrupt machine-boss politicians, in relative terms, compared to hardcore true-believer status like Woodrow Wilson, those good old boy boss politicians seem relatively much, much more benign. The kind of nickel-and-dime boss-hog corruption, hooking people up with jobs in return for political support and all that kind of stuff, is actually much less threatening in the grand scheme of things overall to things like individual rights and liberties than is Wilson's very principled Hegelian sanctimonious hyperstatism. I remember reading something many years ago by the excellent H.L. Mencken, who lived and wrote during this time period and was, to put it very mildly, no fan of the progressives of his day, including Wilson. And Mencken was telling a story about his father, who owned a small business. I think it was a cigar store, if I remember right. And how his father had to pay occasional small bribes to a local politician to basically be left alone. Because there was something about how he was running his business that was technically breaking a city ordinance. It was some bullshit thing. I think it was something related to the specifications of the sign that he had up in front of the store. Not really anything morally horrible or whatever, just some stupid dumbass law that Mencken's father was technically breaking. And anyway, Mencken's point was that that kind of corrupt old-school politics, while perhaps at times annoying to deal with, is ultimately much less of a big deal and much less of an impingement on your freedom than the likes of Woodrow Wilson and the progressives. And I definitely think Mencken is totally onto something. I mean, what's a bigger infringement on your rights and freedoms and ability to run your life and run your business? The occasional nickel-and-dime payoff to a corrupt city government guy to just leave you alone and not enforce a stupid bullshit law? Or stuff like the income tax, the Federal Reserve, military conscription, government propaganda, 
and the suppression of the First Amendment and other civil liberties. I think you get my point. I don't think it's all that hard to see which really clearly is the lesser evil from the point of view of individual rights and freedoms. By the way, I tried to find this Mencken piece I was talking about while I was working on this episode, but I couldn't dig it up in time, and I didn't want to spend an enormous amount of time and energy tracking it down. In early January, before Wilson was sworn in, he made Joseph Tumulty, as I mentioned before, his personal secretary, and Tumulty would act as his right-hand man because of his expertise and familiarity with the intricacies of New Jersey politics, which Wilson mostly was still ignorant of. And like I said, Tumulty would basically function as a combination of secretary, chief of staff, and kind of legislative assistant to Wilson as governor. Tumulty was an anti-machine, anti-boss, progressive reformer, but he was also a guy who, unlike the self-righteous and standoffish Wilson, was really gregarious and thoroughly enjoyed the nitty-gritty and gamesmanship of politics. A guy who was, unlike Wilson, happy to chum and gossip with politicians and reporters. Because of all this, Tumulty also ended up handling most of the patronage duties of filling jobs and appointments. Wilson didn't like dealing with that sort of stuff, except for when it came to filling some of the higher-level offices. But Tumulty was the surrogate who would do the somewhat shadier side of things that needed to be done in order for Wilson to get his agenda passed. Things like, for example, using the patronage strategically in order to sway legislators who needed to be swayed into supporting Wilson's agenda. Interestingly, Wilson didn't call Tumulty by his first name. In public, he would always refer to him simply by his last name, though supposedly in private he often called him My Dear Boy. And Tumulty, for his part, would simply call his boss Governor. With Tumulty's assistance, in the days leading up to his inauguration, Wilson began to put pressure on state legislators for his agenda and also to make sure that Martine, and not Sugar Jim Smith, would get the Senate seat that was up for grabs. In terms of his agenda for New Jersey, Wilson was heavily influenced by progressive governors in other states, such as. Robert LaFollette in Wisconsin, and William Simon, I'm not sure how to say this, it looks like Uren, it's U, apostrophe R-E-N, Uren maybe, of Oregon, both of whom were progressive Republicans, not Democrats, by the way, showing just how much progressivism version 1.0 was already a major factor in both major political parties. Wilson's state government reform wish list was basically plagiarized from what La Follette, Uren, and a few other progressive governors of the time period of both parties had already been doing. Wilson realized that he would face opposition both from many Republicans for pure partisan reasons, as well as from the old-school Sugar Jim-style Democrats. So he reached out very heavily to George Record and some of the other progressive or New Idea New Jersey Republicans. In fact, the day before his inauguration, Wilson had a meeting at a New York hotel with a group that included George Record, as well as some other state politicians and sort of reformer activists, 
as well as some friendly members of the press, at which they basically worked out what Wilson's top priorities for reform measures should be. Now, someone who was at the meeting leaked word of it to Sugar Jim Smith, who was absolutely infuriated that Wilson was actually going behind his back and working with some Republicans rather than with the Democratic bosses like Smith. Wilson, by the way, would later appoint George Record to the State Board of Assessors. On January 17, 1911, Woodrow Wilson was sworn in as governor of New Jersey. In his inaugural speech, he outlined his progressive reform agenda. Just over one week later, the New Jersey state legislature elected James Martin, and not Sugar Jim Smith, as U.S. Senator. It had taken multiple ballots because a candidate had to get a majority of both houses. But as it played out, Smith never really had a chance, and he had clearly lost a lot of his pull with the New Jersey Democratic Party, which was now turning increasingly progressive, in part due to new progressive legislators having been elected, and in part to others simply seeing which way the popular winds were blowing. After Smith's defeat, Wilson wrote, quote, I pitied Smith at the last. It was so plain that he had few real friends, that he held men by fear and power and the benefits he could bestow, not by love or loyalty or any genuine devotion. The minute it was seen that he was defeated, his adherents began to desert him like rats, leaving a sinking ship. He left Trenton, attended, I am told, only by his sons, and looking old and broken. He wept, they say, as he admitted himself utterly beaten. Such is the end of political power, particularly when selfishly obtained and heartlessly used. End quote. Wilson then got a little introspective about the Game of Thrones that he was now playing, writing, quote, It is a pitiless game in which it would seem one takes one's life in one's hands, and for me it has only begun. End quote. In his effort against Smith, Wilson had appealed directly to popular opinion, trying to leverage that to put pressure on legislators. This would be one of his favorite tactics as governor and later on as president. Now, you have to understand that back in that time period, this was often considered a violation of the separation of powers and checks and balances for a governor or a president to do. Now, the chief executive could always make recommendations of the legislature, and many chief executives at the state or federal level often did use sort of back channels to lobby or pressure legislators, but it was considered kind of a faux pas at best, and usurpation and demagoguery at worst, for a chief executive to appeal directly to the voters in order to put pressure on the legislators. But to Wilson, doing that sort of thing was just implementing his vision of modern democracy that we've talked about in previous installments in this series. Remember, he thought one of the biggest problems with the American system was the separation between legislative and executive branches. Wilson would often justify this sort of stuff by making the same arguments that guys like Andrew Jackson and Teddy Roosevelt had previously used to justify some of their more constitutionally questionable executive actions. As Wilson put it in a speech to a national governor's conference, quote, There is no one in any legislature who represents the whole commonwealth. 
no one connected with legislation who does, except the governor, end quote. And that therefore, Wilson argued, this gave him the right to do these sorts of things in order to implement the popular will. And again, he would soon bring this theory and practice into the White House, too. Wilson's throwing of Smith under the bus enhanced his progressive street creds, both in New Jersey and nationwide. The New York World, which at the time was the country's number one Democratic Party newspaper, said, quote, New York needs a Woodrow Wilson, end quote. And the general chatter about him running for president soon increased around the country. Wilson himself still tried to play coy, even with people close to him. For example, he even wrote in a letter to Mrs. Peck, quote, Thought of the presidency annoys me in a way. I do not want to be president. There is too little play in it, too little time for one's friends, too much distasteful publicity and fuss and frills. End quote. The Wilson family moved out of the president's residence at Princeton University. And at this time, New Jersey actually didn't provide any sort of a residence for the governor in Trenton, the state capital, just an office for him. And then, strangely, a summer residence for the governor on the seacoast at a town called Seagirt. The Wilsons initially rented rooms at the Princeton Inn after they moved out of the president's house at the university, and then eventually they began renting a home in the town of Princeton. So while Wilson was governor, he didn't actually live in Trenton. He lived in Princeton and then, of course, summered at Seagirt. And he would actually commute daily 12 miles to Trenton to go to his office every day. Wilson's immediate agenda that he got cracking on right away included regulation of public utilities, a new anti-corruption law, an Employers' Liability Act, and passing a law to create direct primaries in New Jersey, along with several other changes to election rules such as voter registration and the secret ballot. A bill encompassing these latter electoral measures, sort of an omnibus election reform bill, got rolling in the legislature, and it faced very strong opposition from James Nugent, Sugar Jim's son-in-law, who now led the anti-Wilson faction of the Democratic Party. When this election reform bill looked like it was going to get stalled out in the legislature, Wilson requested to speak to the legislature in person. This ruffled some feathers. Even among his progressive allies, some saw this as a breach of precedent and protocol, or perhaps even an unconstitutional violation of the separation of powers between the legislature and executive. Of course, again, as Wilson had been writing about for almost three decades at this point, he hated those sorts of constitutional separations of powers. When one legislator explicitly challenged him on this, Wilson pulled out a copy of the New Jersey Constitution and read aloud, quote, the governor shall communicate by message to the legislature at the opening of each session, and at such times as he may deem necessary, the condition of the state, and recommend such measures as he may deem expedient. End quote. So, in lawyerly terms, Wilson was able to portray this arguable breach of the spirit of the Constitution as still being technically within its letter. By the way, at this time, it was still generally customary for presidents of the United States to send messages to the Congress in written form to be read by somebody else, rather than, as we're used to in our time, having the president frequently go to Congress in person to speak to it. And I think in most, if not all, states, the same protocol or precedent existed in regard to governors and state legislatures. 
So Wilson was to some degree breaking precedent by speaking directly to the New Jersey legislature. And as president of the United States, he would repeatedly do the same with the Congress. When Wilson spoke on the election reform bill, he spoke to the legislature for three hours. And afterward, the assembly, which was the state's lower house, which was controlled by Democrats, passed the bill, and then it went to the state Senate, which was still controlled by the Republicans. James Nugent was dead set on killing the bill in the Senate, so much so that he even began trying to court Republicans to help him do it. Which was a very rare thing for someone like Nugent to do. These guys were not terribly ideological, but they were hyper-partisan. These old-style boss politicians. During this time, Wilson had a very hostile meeting with Nugent, at which Nugent implied that Wilson must be working the legislature behind the scenes in the machine boss sort of way in order to have gotten the election reform bill through the assembly. Basically almost saying outright that Wilson was no less corrupt than he, meaning Nugent. At which point, Wilson gestured to the door and said, Good afternoon, Mr. Nugent. On his way out, Nugent shouted, You're no gentleman, to which Wilson replied, You're no judge. So pretty heated by the standards of that time and place. When word of this confrontation and this exchange went public, it again burnished Wilson's progressive reformer independent cred by once again depicting him as standing up to the bosses of his own party. And Wilson won. Ultimately, the Republican-controlled state Senate passed his election reform bill unanimously. And over the next few weeks, the legislature passed Wilson's Corrupt Practices Bill, his Workmen's Compensation Bill, and his bill to set up a state commission to control transportation and utilities. Wilson also backed the movement for municipal government reform, which would allow cities and towns to adopt the city commission form of government and to allow for the initiative, referendum, and recall at the local level. And this got passed in the spring of 1911, too, as did an education reform bill that created a new state board of education, which would have much more centralized control over the state schools, at the expense of local autonomy, of course. Wilson and the legislature also, in the early months of his governorship, passed laws dealing with food storage and food inspection, regulating working conditions in factories, and limiting women and children from being able to perform certain types of jobs. So it's all very much within the standard, progressive, sort of paternalist, centralizing paradigm of the time period. Wilson's only major defeat as governor during this time was when he urged the New Jersey legislature to ratify the federal income tax amendment which had been passed by the Congress in 1909 and was then in the process of being ratified by the individual states. Wilson was able to get the Democratic-controlled state assembly to vote yes, but he could not get the Republican-controlled state Senate to do it. Ultimately, New Jersey wouldn't ratify that amendment until Wilson was in the White House. And the income tax amendment would be ratified fully before the end of Wilson's first year as President of the United States. Soon after a lot of these early victories, speaking at a banquet on Jefferson's birthday given by a Democratic Party organization in Indianapolis, Wilson took the occasion to, again, reiterate his progressive criticism 
of sticking to the ideas of the founding generation, arguing that Jefferson's famous statement that that government is best which governs least was now an anachronism that it might have been appropriate in Jefferson's day, but it was no longer appropriate in early 20th century America. Wilson said, quote, America is now not and cannot in the future be a place for unrestricted individual enterprise. I do not find the problems of 1911 solved in the Declaration of Independence. End quote. Wilson then asserted that if Jefferson were alive in 1911, he would agree with Wilson on this. Now, how he knew this, who the hell knows? Wilson then went on to say that if the government were to simply leave people in society alone, that would be to leave the average person, quote, helpless as against the obstacles with which he has to contend, end quote. He said that, quote, law in our day must come to the assistance of the individual, end quote. And that, quote, it is the object of government to make those adjustments of life which will put every man in a position to claim his normal rights as a living human being, end quote. And that therefore, quote, government must regulate business because that is the foundation of every other relationship, end quote. So here he's making the classic progressive positivist argument about rights, that a big, powerful government is necessary in order to empower the individual, to allow the individual to enjoy full rights, in opposition to the classical negative rights argument of, say, most of the founding fathers, and kind of minarchist classical liberalism in general. The argument that the best thing the state could do to liberate and empower the individual is to leave him alone as much as possible, other than perhaps offering some basic legal protections against crimes of force and fraud. Now, this argument, this belief that Wilson is articulating in this speech, the belief that the best way to empower the individual, the little guy, the average citizen, whatever, is to create an ever more powerful and centralized Leviathan state, and to make that individual, the average citizen, ever more dependent upon that Leviathan. In my mind, this is one of several of the most fundamental flaws at the bottom of the progressive ideology. How you can empower the individual by putting him under the boot of Leviathan and making him more dependent upon Leviathan is a circle I just can't square. Perhaps your mileage may vary. Now, I think it's pretty clear that Wilson's time as governor, for the most part, was a success from the standpoint of getting almost all of his platform and agenda passed. How much of that agenda was good or bad is another question. But just from the standpoint of effectiveness, he did get done most of what he wanted to get done, and he got most of it done within a few months. In fact, almost all of what Wilson accomplished as governor in terms of changes and reforms and legislation happened in 1911, his first year in office. And in fact, most of it was really done in the first few months of his administration. The bulk of it was done by April of 1911, and he kind of stalled out or stagnated after that, perhaps partly because he didn't really know what else to do at the state level. He had his basic progressive wish list and got most of it passed. And governor of New Jersey despite his protestations to the contrary, was never really a goal in and of itself for him, but simply a stepping stone. Simultaneously, Wilson was getting more and more absorbed in laying the groundwork for a White House run. 
Furthermore, the old school bosses were starting to push back harder against Wilson by the second half of 1911. And this would split the Democratic Party in the state. The Smith-Nugent contingent actually deliberately stood down from trying to really get out the Democratic vote in the districts they controlled in legislative elections that occurred in fall of 1911. So that in the legislative session that began in January 1912, both houses of the legislature ended up controlled by Republicans. And despite his earlier attempts to build bridges with the New Idea Republicans, Wilson found that most Republicans were still partisan enough, whether they were New Idea or not, to not really want to pass any more of Wilson's legislation. Instead, they started passing bills of their own that Wilson ended up vetoing. So for all these reasons, the latter part of Wilson's two years as governor of New Jersey were kind of a dud, just from a getting-shit-passed perspective. And there is evidence in some of his letters from this time that Wilson was frustrated by this for sure, but, like I said, he was getting more and more absorbed and distracted by setting up a presidential campaign. And this probably prevented him from getting as frustrated by the situation as he otherwise might have. Now, one major issue that I've not mentioned in regard to Wilson that was growing to be a really big deal in the early 20th century in America was alcohol prohibition. The movement to ban alcohol in the U.S. was definitely gathering steam right alongside the overall progressive movement. And in fact, while not all progressives supported prohibition, a hell of a lot of them did. And even those progressives that didn't actively support prohibition usually didn't actively oppose it either. And on the flip side, again, not everyone who favored alcohol prohibition were progressives, but a hell of a lot of them were. There was a huge amount of overlap between progressivism and prohibitionism. Now, for Wilson's part, the issue did come up a little bit during his brief time as governor which was a time period when many states either were passing or had already passed alcohol prohibition at the state level. In addition, there was the so-called local option movement within some states, which aimed to simply get it established that counties and towns could ban booze in their jurisdiction, even if the state itself didn't go fully dry. Wilson, for his part, really didn't seem to place a lot of personal importance on the issue of prohibition one way or the other. I've never so far come across any evidence that he was an ardent prohibitionist or considered it a priority. But on the other hand, as a progressive, he didn't believe in something like timeless individual rights to say, I don't know, be the final arbiter about what substances you should or shouldn't put in your own body. Progressives don't believe in that sort of stuff. And so Wilson was As far as I can tell, kind of an agnostic, he didn't have any principled opposition to prohibition. It just wasn't a priority for him personally. But if modern democracy resulted in prohibition, he certainly didn't object to that. 
And as governor in New Jersey, he supported local option, kind of a split the difference stance, although again, he didn't make it a priority. So for example, Wilson wrote in May 1911 to a New Jersey reverend named Thomas Shannon, quote, I am in favor of local option. I am a thorough believer in local self-government and believe that every self-governing community which constitutes a social unit should have the right to control the matter of regulation of or withholding of licenses. But the questions involved are social and moral and are not susceptible of being made parts of a party program. Whenever they have been made, the subject matter of party contests, they have cut the lines of party organization and party action athwart to the utter confusion of political action in every other field. They have thrown every other question, however important, into the background and have made constructive party action impossible for long years together. So far as I am concerned, therefore, I can never consent to have the question of local option made an issue between political parties in this state, end quote. And in closing this letter, he referred to the prohibition question as, quote, essentially non-political, non-partisan, moral, and social in its nature, end quote. So he correctly, I think, realized that the issue often ripped parties apart when it was put front and center, and furthermore, that this very passionate wedge issue often crowded out every other issue, no matter how much more seemingly important other issues might be once it was brought up. So he was basically saying in this letter that he personally supported local option, but that he was not going to make it a big political issue for fear of having it take over everything and maybe break his party apart even more than it already was between the Wilsonite progressive side and the Smith-Nugent old-school boss side. By the way, those old-school Democratic boss politicians, who were strongly supported by the brewers in the area, opposed local option for obvious reasons. Because they wanted to keep alcohol legal statewide, while many, though not all, of the progressives on Wilson's side of the party at the very least supported local option, while some would have even supported outright statewide prohibition. So once again, we see that the old-style corrupt crony boss politicians, for all of their faults, they're once again more the friends of liberty relative to the progressive do-gooders. And later as president, as far as I know, at least as of this recording, Wilson himself never took a hard public stance on the issue of prohibition one way or the other, although he did appoint some prohibitionists to high positions, even a few of his cabinet secretaries, in part, of course, simply because a lot of the progressive and populist factions within the Democratic Party at the time were also prohibitionists. Now, in contrast to prohibition, one other potentially controversial issue, perhaps even more so today than it would have been back then, that Wilson did take a stance on and do some action on while he was governor of New Jersey was eugenics. And there's a good chance I may dig into this issue in more detail in relation to Wilson when I do an episode in the future, as I'm currently planning to do, eventually kind of putting together and evaluating Wilson's views and statements and actions regarding race. Because I think it's pretty clear he definitely was a racist in the real sense of the word, not in the current sense of it's someone I disagree with or something like that. But of course, his views, statements, and actions on race over the course of almost three decades in academia and then another decade in politics are complicated. 
you know, it's not just sort of like simple anti-black prejudice or, you know, anti-non-white prejudice. It's more complicated than that. But make no mistake, he absolutely was a racist, and I don't think anyone seriously disputes that. Even Wilson apologists will admit that he was pretty racist. But anyway, I do want to make sure I mention eugenics a little bit here in regard to Wilson, because it is part of the story of his brief tenure as governor of New Jersey. So Wilson, like many, perhaps even most from what I've been able to tell, of the political and intellectual leaders of progressivism version 1.0, including, by the way, Teddy Roosevelt, was a supporter of eugenics. Eugenics policies in the U.S. were mostly implemented at the state level in the early 20th century, and it was pretty much always progressive governors and state legislators who were the driving force behind them. And this is an aspect of Wilson's time as governor that no major biography of him that I've read so far actually gets into at all, or even mentions at all. And this is perhaps not surprising, considering most historians in general are progressive or something close to progressive, and so they're at least somewhat sympathetic to Wilson, even if they might disavow any support of his racism, of course. But in general, if you're, for example, a modern-day progressive and you're writing a biography of somebody like Wilson, whether consciously or not, you're probably going to put the rosiest spin on him you can. You know, there's going to be certain things that he said and did in regard to race, for example, that you're not going to be able to turn a blind eye to. But considering the fact that most Wilson biographers give very short shrift to his governorship anyway, then it becomes very easy to either willfully and consciously or not, skip over eugenics and its connection to him as governor of New Jersey. I only know about this from reading books and articles about eugenics. If I had just been reading books about Wilson, like biographies and such, I would have never had the slightest clue that he signed a eugenics bill into law in New Jersey while he was governor. I just found it mentioned in books and articles I was reading on eugenics. So, in April 1911, when he was passing much of the rest of his agenda, still just a few months into his term as governor, Wilson signed into law a bill that allowed for forcible sterilization by the state of certain types of people, including certain classifications of criminals and also of adults who were labeled, quote-unquote, feeble-minded. And if you don't know, feeble-mindedness was perhaps the favorite catch-all term of eugenicists during this time period that was used to lump together various types of quote-unquote defective people that they wanted to sterilize. In fact, the law in question that Wilson signed was labeled as, quote, an act to authorize and provide for the sterilization of feeble-minded, including idiots, imbeciles, and morons epileptics, rapists, certain criminals, and other defectives, end quote. Once the law was signed, Governor Wilson then appointed the men to run this board that the act set up, a board that would be in charge of deciding whom to sterilize based on various alleged physical and or mental defects. The legislation did create a sort of hearing and appeals process, though I'm guessing it was far from what most fair-minded people would consider due process. And in the legislation, the doctors who would be performing sterilization procedures for the state were protected from any criminal liability for anything they did. 
at the behest of the State Eugenics Board. So this law was passed by the legislature with Wilson's support. He signed it. He appointed the board. But there are no records that indicate that anyone was ever sterilized in New Jersey under this law, though people, of course, were sterilized under similar laws in other states, of course. But not in New Jersey, because in New Jersey, the law came under legal challenge very quickly and was actually ruled unconstitutional by the New Jersey Supreme Court in 1913. And again, there's no records that show that any sterilizations were actually performed during the time it was passed and the time it was thrown out as unconstitutional. But to me, what's especially interesting about this particular law, aside from the fact that Woodrow Wilson signed it during his time as governor and that almost no Woodrow Wilson scholars or biographers ever mentioned this, is another really important and interesting detail. That is, the identity of the main guy pushing eugenics in New Jersey at the time, the guy who was behind actually formulating the bill that Wilson ended up signing. And if very few historians mention Wilson's support of eugenics and signing of a sterilization bill into law in New Jersey, even fewer, basically none, other than a handful of historians who have done specialized work on the history of eugenics, will ever note the identity of this particular individual. Again, the only places I've seen him mentioned are in a few books and articles that are specifically on the history of eugenics in America, and not books and articles that are on Woodrow Wilson as the focus. So at this point, I'll stop burying the lead here and tell you who the main man in New Jersey was behind the sterilization law that Wilson signed. A man named Edwin Katzen Ellenbogen. Katzen Ellenbogen has kind of a murky background, but from what I can tell, he was born in a city in Ukraine, but with some mixture of Polish, Jewish, and perhaps German ancestry, though he was a practicing Catholic, but he had Jewish ancestry. Now, all of this is pretty ironic in light of what he ends up being involved with. So Katzen Ellenbogen was born in 1882 and immigrated to the U.S. in 1905 and became a naturalized citizen. He was a doctor of psychiatry and a very passionate advocate of eugenics. And in 1911, when Wilson became governor, Katzen Ellenbogen, who was living in New Jersey at the time, was made the head of a state home for epileptics. Working there, he further developed his eugenicist ideas and came to believe that epilepsy, among many other social and medical problems, was a purely hereditary thing and that the best thing to do to ameliorate these problems was to do eugenics policies such as sterilization. And this was the man whom Wilson tapped to write the New Jersey sterilization law that Wilson would ultimately sign. A few years later, in 1913, when Wilson was in the White House, Katzen Ellenbogen went to work for a couple of years at the Eugenics Research Association, which was at the Carnegie Institution's Cold Springs Harbor Lab. And then in 1915, kind of weird timing, a year into World War I, he decided to move back to Europe. And I think initially he went to Russia, and then he bounced around a few different countries before eventually settling down in Germany, where he was living when the Nazis came to power. 
Katzen Ellenbogen was defined as Jewish by the Nazi government's criteria, and he actually fled the country when the Nazis started really making life hard on the Jews, and he made it to France, but before long, of course, the Nazis would occupy much of the country, and eventually Katzen Ellenbogen ended up being arrested by the Nazi occupiers in France. However, because of his medical expertise and his fluency in both German and French and his background of eugenics work, he was basically conscripted into working for the German occupiers. Though technically, he was still a prisoner in custody, but because he was collaborating with them, he didn't get treated too badly. After a while in France, he was shipped to Buchenwald, where he collaborated with the Germans in running the camp there. And again, it's kind of murky from what I've been able to dig up so far as to exactly what Katzen Ellenbogen did or didn't do there. But there's no question that he was definitely collaborating with the Nazis and that he was actively involved in some pretty heinous shit. And he was definitely feared by the other regular inmates at Buchenwald. So whatever exactly he was involved with there, at the very least, he was an accessory and collaborator to some pretty awful shit. And it was bad enough, whatever he had done, that after World War II, he was tried, even though he was technically, you know, a prisoner of the Germans, but because of all of his collaboration with them. He was put on trial as part of the Buchenwald Crimes Against Humanity trials, where he was convicted and given a prison sentence. From what I've read, it couldn't be decisively proven that he himself had directly caused or committed any killings, and I think that's the reason why he was not eligible for the death penalty. So yeah, this shady character who eventually collaborated with the Nazis at Buchenwald and was tried for crimes committed there was the guy who, all the way back in 1911, Woodrow Wilson had tapped as his point man in crafting a state eugenics law in New Jersey. What a fun fucking fact that is so often conveniently overlooked. For the remainder of this episode, I'm going to be mostly talking about Woodrow Wilson's preparations while he was governor of New Jersey to run for president, and how he was being further groomed by certain important people within the Democratic Party. And here, a lot of Princeton alumni played big roles, because they were scattered across the nation, often in positions of power, wealth, and or influence. and particularly if they were Democrats, they were likely to have very positive feelings towards Wilson. 
They were very important in laying the groundwork for his run for president, and some had actually been doing this sort of stuff since even before he became governor of New Jersey. And then, once he became governor, they amped up their efforts. Some were actually former students from Wilson's years as a professor, such as William McCombs, who had originally come from Arkansas and was a major power player within the Democratic Party. He had graduated Princeton in 1898, gone on to Harvard Law School, and become a successful attorney in New York. Other Princeton alumni who backed Wilson were, in addition to former students of his, in some cases they were wealthy older alumni who'd actually been Wilson's backers back when he was president of Princeton. So in other words, they were more like of Wilson's generation of alumni. This includes guys we've mentioned before, like Cleveland Dodge and Cyrus McCormick, for example. But in general, another source of Wilson boosters within the Democratic Party were powerful transplanted Southerners. Now, we've already mentioned McCombs, who was also a Princeton alumni, but there were others who maybe hadn't gone to Princeton, but they fit this general type of Southern transplants, guys born and raised in the South, but who had then spent much or all of their adult life and careers up in the North, usually in New York City, but occasionally somewhere else. So they often had a very similar career track to Wilson in the sense of born in the South, educated at an elite university in the North, and then having their career in the North, even though these guys, you know, unlike Wilson, didn't go into academia. And they just seem to have gravitated towards and been attracted to Wilson because he was another one of these transplanted Southerners. And he was progressive, and these sorts of guys who gravitated towards Wilson tended to be to one degree or another progressives as well. And strategically, they thought that a transplanted Southerner would be a very powerful candidate for the Democratic Party to run for president, as such a person would be Southern enough to really turn out the white Southern Democratic vote, while not being excessively Southern to alienate Northern voters. So McCombs, whom I've just mentioned, was of course one such Southern transplant, but others included guys like Walter McCorkle, who was originally from Virginia and who had become a successful Wall Street lawyer and president of the Southern Society of New York. And also Walter Hines Page, who was originally from North Carolina, who'd gone on to become a journalist in New York and eventually became a powerful editor and publisher. Very early into Wilson's governorship, Page, McCorkle, and McCombs began to put together a plan to send Wilson on a speaking tour of different parts of the nation in order to start putting him in front of voters outside of the Northeast and South, where he already had a fair amount of recognition and familiarity and a bit of a following. Now, these men would raise several thousand dollars to fund this trip from among themselves and some of their wealthy friends. And so their focus really was on getting Wilson into the West, where he was definitely the least well-known. Now, obviously, a main goal of this trip would be for Wilson to build a more national following, but he made sure to act like that's not what he was doing. So when Wilson spoke to Page, McCorkle, and McCombs about this potential tour, he made sure to say, quote, I am not to be put forward as a candidate for the presidency, end quote. Now, a little bit before his Western tour began, he sort of warmed up by attending and speaking at an event called the Southern Commercial Congress in Atlanta in March 1911. This was an event put on by a group that was aimed at promoting Southern business activity. 
A lot of prestigious people spoke there, including former President Teddy Roosevelt and current President William Howard Taft. Woodrow Wilson was introduced at a breakfast before the day of his big speech at the event by a judge who'd actually administered Wilson's law school exams for the Georgia Bar way, way back, like 30 years before, before Wilson had gone to grad school and become a professor. And in his introduction, this judge said, quote, Last evening, we listened to a man who has been president. This evening, we shall hear a man who is president. But we have with us this morning a man who is going to be president. End quote. And in remarks at a dinner later during the event, Wilson said, quote, The present is a time of rejoicing for the coming back of the South into national politics. End quote. Clearly pandering to his audience and trying to emphasize his Southern credentials, and by extension pandering to white Southerners in general, who then were one of the most important and reliable parts of the Democratic Party's coalition. But in that same speech, he also said, quote, The older I get, the more radical I get along certain lines. Radical in the literal sense of the word, and I long more and more to get at the root of the whole matter. End quote. Now, he kind of left it deliberately vague what he really meant by radical. Many of these Southerners listening to Wilson speak, most of whom probably had never read a single word of Wilson's academic writings, Rorschacked their own wishes and hopes onto that statement and assumed that Wilson's radicalism that he was speaking of must be some sort of Jeffersonian traditional Southern radicalism. But of course, Wilson was nothing of the sort. Now, another important thing for Wilson to do, aside from burnishing some of his Southern credentials and then eventually touring the West, in order to increase his prospects at the national level within the Democratic Party, would be to try to mend fences as much as possible with William Jennings Bryan, who, despite having been a losing presidential candidate for the party three times as of 1911, still had a huge following within the party, and without whose endorsement, Wilson probably would have no chance of getting the nomination. But you may recall, as we've already mentioned a few times in this series, Wilson had long been very critical of Bryan and his populist movement, and had publicly and privately criticized him, and even said some things that could be considered downright insulting. You also may recall my mentioning in earlier episodes that Wilson had voted for the third-party so-called National Democratic Ticket in 1896, though I do believe he actually did vote the straight Democratic Ticket, including Bryan, during Bryan's subsequent runs in 1900 and again in 1908. But even so, Wilson had continued to be a critic of Bryan and his movement. The opportunity to begin some sort of rapprochement with Brian came when Wilson was down in Georgia speaking at that conference. And Ellen Wilson, who was back home in New Jersey, still living in the Princeton Inn at the time, just happened to read in the paper that Brian had been invited to come and speak at the Princeton Theological Seminary. She immediately telegrammed Wilson, seeing the opportunity there. And Wilson, who again was still down in Atlanta, hurried back, caught the first train he could, in order to catch Brian when he was in New Jersey. Wilson ended up making it in time. He caught Brian's speech, which was on the subject of faith, and then the Wilson family had dinner with Brian at the Princeton Inn. And it seems that Wilson and Brian apparently hit it off pretty well personally. 
Wilson even wrote to Mrs. Peck afterward about how Brian had impressed him. Now, this may have been genuine. According to pretty much all sources on the matter, Brian was a very charismatic and charming individual. That said, Wilson taking a shine to him and starting to reverse his attitude towards him may also have been a case of political needs driving perception, perhaps without Wilson even being consciously aware of that's what was going on. In other words, because he needed to make friendly with Brian in order to get the Democratic Party's nomination for president in 1912, he therefore perceived Brian in a very positive light when he did meet him. After dinner, Joseph Tumulty, who had also attended, supposedly said to Ellen Wilson, quote, You have nominated your husband, Mrs. Wilson, end quote. Three weeks later, the two men, Wilson and Brian, shared a stage with both appearing at a Democratic Party rally in Burlington, New Jersey. And though Wilson had heard Brian speak in person before, it was Brian's first chance to hear Wilson speak, and Wilson seems to have made a favorable impression on Brian. Wilson also made sure to specifically compliment Brian during his own speech. So, Wilson was skillfully mending fences and making friends with the man who was still, as of 1911, Despite having lost his three bids for the presidency, still he was probably the single most popular figure within the Democratic Party. Now, once the New Jersey legislature adjourned after all of Wilson's early victories in April of 1911, with the funding put together by Page, McCombs, and McCorkle, Wilson set off on his speaking tour of the West. He began in Missouri, and over the course of about a month, he visited a dozen western cities, working his way from the Midwest out through the Rocky Mountains and eventually to the West Coast, where he visited cities like Los Angeles and San Francisco and California and Portland, Oregon, where he was favorably introduced by William Uren, the progressive Republican governor of Oregon. On his way back, Wilson made sure to stop off and visit with William Jennings Bryan at his home in Nebraska, and then also stopped off in D.C. on the way back to have dinner with a group of supporters, including Paige McCorkle and McCombs, at which McCombs was basically unofficially appointed Wilson's campaign manager. And in that role, one of McCombs's first pieces of advice to Wilson was to try to tone down the increasing radicalism of his rhetoric in order to avoid alienating too many of the conservative elements that still had some pull within the Democratic Party. But overall, the Western tour was very much a success. It seems to have served its purpose and increased Wilson's national recognition and following. And once he returned to New Jersey, various powerful individuals within the Democratic Party began to contact and visit him. One visitor in the summer of 1911, who would become very important to the rest of Wilson's life and career, and who in fact would eventually become Wilson's son-in-law, was a guy named William Gibbs McAdoo, and he'll come up repeatedly throughout the rest of this series. McAdoo was an attorney and businessman who, like Wilson, was yet another transplanted Southerner who'd moved to the North. He'd ultimately done very well for himself in the railroad industry, including taking over and completing the building of railroad tunnels under the Hudson River that linked Manhattan to New Jersey, a project that had been stalled due to accidents and funding problems, but McAdoo had taken it over and completed the project. 
McAdoo also, by the way, was a staunchly progressive Democrat. Wilson and McAdoo immediately hit it off and became fast friends. And McAdoo became a big Wilson booster within the Democratic Party, and eventually he'd even marry one of Wilson's daughters, and he would also serve as Wilson's Secretary of the Treasury once he was president. In January of 1912, the New York Sun, which was a leading Republican newspaper, published a letter from 1908 in which Wilson had written to a wealthy Princeton alumnus and conservative Democrat, quote, Would that we could do something at once dignified and effective to knock Mr. Bryan once and for all into a cocked hat, end quote. This was considered kind of insulting words. Now, obviously, the printing and publicizing of this letter was intended by Republicans as well as some conservative Democrats to stop Wilson's star from rising by driving a wedge between him and Brian, who had just begun to make friends. But ultimately, it didn't work, and Wilson and Brian stayed on positive terms despite it, in part because both of them seemed to have seen it for what it was. You know, this letter from four years ago suddenly gets publicized. And supposedly Brian said of it, quote, If the big financial interests think they are going to make a rift in the progressive ranks of the Democratic Party by such tactics, they are mistaken. End quote. So we'll wrap this episode up with the entry into Wilson's life of one more very wealthy, powerful Democratic Party mover and shaker, who was yet another Southern transplant, and a guy of this description that is perhaps the most important of all such guys in the Wilson circle. Though, as I've mentioned before in this series, I do at times think that some people do overstate his influence on Wilson in some regards. So, in October of 1911, in New York City, William McCombs invited William Gibbs McAdoo to come with him to visit a rich, powerful Democratic Party behind-the-scenes kind of wire-puller-slash-kingmaker from Texas. The man's name was Edward Mandel House. And McCombs told McAdoo, quote, he has the entire state of Texas in his vest pocket, end quote. At the time, House was staying at his New York City apartment, in the Hotel Gotham on Fifth Avenue, where he actually lived most of the time. House was no politician himself. He didn't have the skill set and personality to be good at, you know, campaigning and public speaking and all that stuff. But he liked to be an advisor, quote-unquote, to politicians. So in Texas politics for many years, he would find some guy he liked— take him under his wing, advise him, groom him, pull strings for him, get him elected governor, and then act as his advisor. So he was an archetypal man behind the curtain, so to speak. He had helped multiple men become governor of Texas over the years, and now he was interested in doing the same sort of thing at a national level. McCombs and McAdoo would be trying to sell Woodrow Wilson to him as the guy. House also, by the way, was an ardent progressive. For the sake of time, I'm not going to go super deep into House's background here. But obviously, over the course of the rest of this Woodrow Wilson series, he'll come up repeatedly, just sort of organically, because of the important role he played during most of Wilson's time in the White House. 
But the short version of House's backstory is that he was the son of an English immigrant to the United States who had come before the Civil War, eventually ended up in Texas, and eventually made himself very, very rich. In fact, when House's father died, I think he's believed to have been at the time either the richest or second richest man in the entire state of Texas, with a pretty diverse portfolio of assets and investments and all sorts of things. So as his son Edward was growing into adulthood, the family fortune was at a level where it could just sort of go on autopilot, right? I mean, there's a certain level of wealth where if you get to it, you can, if you want to, just hire some competent people to sort of manage your investments and run your businesses and whatever, and you can just sort of be a gentleman of leisure, right? Now, there are some people who just get addicted to the money or get addicted to the game, and even if they already have billions of dollars, they're still working like a madman to make a few billion more or whatever. House wasn't one of those people. He was satisfied to already be pretty damn rich. And so after being educated at elite schools and all this sort of thing, he kind of set himself up as a gentleman of leisure. And in the late 19th century, he got very interested in politics. Again, not to run for office himself, but to be a man behind the curtain. He enjoyed that aspect of the game. Now, House was from Texas, but it's important to not like think of him as a rootin' tootin' Texas cowboy type. He really didn't fit that at all. He was much more of a rich, pretty boy, largely educated in the North, and in his adult life, he spent most of his time outside of Texas. Particularly in his later years, he didn't like the heat. He didn't like, you know, riding horses on the range and all the kind of stereotype Texas cowboy stuff. He much preferred hanging out with other rich, elite people in places like New York City and London. Nonetheless, he got heavily involved in Texas politics where, of course, during this time period, the Democratic Party was the only game in town. And over the course of the last decade of the 19th century and into the first few years of the 20th century, House played a key role in electing no less than four governors of the state of Texas. And like I said, he would basically act as their campaign manager and then as a top advisor to them once they were in office. And it was one of these men, a guy named James Hogg, who bestowed upon Edward House the honorary title of Texas Colonel. So, when you hear House referred to as Colonel House, he's literally as much of a colonel as Colonel Sanders. The only difference being, his title was bestowed by Texas, rather than by Kentucky. But it's just as much of an honorary BS title. You know, he was never in the military or anything like that. By the way, side note, that Texas governor who gave him the title Colonel, James Hogg, actually named one of his daughters Ima. Yes, this guy named one of his daughters Ima Hogg. So, talk about an asshole of a father. So anyway, by about 1910, House, I guess, needed a bigger fix, right? I mean, the same thing happens with the people running for office. They run for mayor, next thing you know, they gotta be governor. Next thing you know, they gotta be president. Well, I guess the same is true with people who operate behind the scenes. Same deal, right? You get a bunch of governors elected, and eventually, I guess, to get the same satisfaction and fix, you gotta go the next step up. So around 1910 or so, he's seriously looking to try and play his game, but to get a president elected instead of a governor of Texas. So he begins sort of shopping around 
in the national field of Democratic Party politicians to see if he can find someone that he can adopt and take under his wing and groom and help get elected president, and then, of course, be an advisor to that man once he's installed in the White House. Like I said before, House was an ardent progressive Democrat, and he wanted a candidate who shared his views, but who also seemed to be electable on a national scale, which I guess he had decided that none of those governors of Texas were national material. And he wanted someone who was a relative newcomer to high-level politics. Because such a person, of course, would be in the most need of House's help. And for a little while, House was considering New York City Mayor William J. Gaynor as the guy, before Wilson popped up on his radar, thanks to McCombs and McAdoo. Soon after McCombs and McAdoo's meeting with House, at which they seemed to have basically pitched Woodrow Wilson to him, Wilson wrote a letter to House, and then House wrote back, and the two immediately became pen pals. They met in person for the first time on November 24, 1911. Wilson came to the Hotel Gotham to visit House, and they talked for about an hour, at which point Wilson left, only because he had another appointment he had to get to. The two men agreed to meet again a few days later, and this began one of the great political bromances in American history. The two men started gushing about each other to each other and also gushing about each other to other people as well. So, for example, just a few weeks after knowing each other, according to House, quote, a few weeks after we met and after we had exchanged confidences, which men usually do not exchange except after years of friendship, I asked him if he realized that we had only known one another for so short a time. He replied, My dear friend, we have known one another always. And I think this is true. End quote. And by this time, near the end of 1911, after knowing him really for only just a few weeks, House had clearly made his choice that Wilson was the guy, and he began doing everything he could to get the Texas Democratic Party bigwigs on the Wilson train and to begin working along with those other guys I've already mentioned, like Page, McCombs, McAdoo, etc., to get Woodrow Wilson the Democratic Party's nomination for president in 1912. So, with the backing of these important Democrats like Page, McCombs, McCorkle, McAdoo, and now House, and with some degree of rapprochement with Bryan achieved, although without any formal endorsement by Bryan as of yet, Wilson began gearing up for the 1912 Democratic nomination battle. But it was still going to be a real fight because there were several other strong contenders in the field in 1912, including the Speaker of the House, Champ Clark of Missouri, who seemed to have many advantages over Wilson going into the convention, including that he might actually be more likely to get Brian's support than Wilson. So in the next episode in this series, whenever that happens, we are going to cover how Wilson got the nomination of the Democratic Party for president, and then the very, very unusual and interesting 1912 presidential general election.
I hope you've enjoyed listening to the Dangerous History Podcast, and I hope that you found some value in it. If you have and you'd like to contribute to my work, there are many different ways that you can help out. One that costs you nothing but maybe a little bit of time and effort is to help spread the word about the show to anyone you think might be interested in it. There are also a bunch of ways that you can financially assist me to continue doing the work that I do and to continue making it better as best I can as time goes on. The most helpful way and the one that gives you potentially a lot of value back in return is to sign up for a recurring contribution via either Patreon or Subscribestar, and the links to my Patreon page and my Subscribestar page will be in the show notes of this episode. I now have multiple levels of support via either Patreon or Subscribestar. For $2 per month, you are at the Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, and you will get access to all of the vintage DHP episodes, meaning the first 52 episodes of the show, which are no longer available to the general public. And of course, you'll get the satisfaction of knowing that you're helping to keep this podcast going, and you'll have my gratitude for doing so. For only $5 per month, you will be at the Journeyman Scholar Warrior level. And for this, you'll receive the benefits of the $2 Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, plus access to special bonus DHP episodes that are available nowhere else, as well as access to ad-free regular DHP episodes as they come out, and you will be eligible to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warrior's private Facebook group. For $15 per month, you will be at the Scholar Warrior level. And you'll get all the benefits of the journeyman level plus access to Dangerous History Lyceum course lectures as they are produced and released. And for $25 per month, you'll be at the Master Scholar Warrior level, where you will get all the benefits of the $15 Scholar Warrior level plus additional benefits still to be determined, but probably including but not limited to a regular live chat. You can also make one-time or recurring contributions to the Dangerous History Podcast via PayPal or Bitcoin. And another great way you can help out my work is by clicking on any of the Amazon affiliate links on my website to do your Amazon.com shopping. And if you buy stuff after going through any of those affiliate links, I get a little commission at no additional cost to you. And this helps me to buy supplies, research materials, etc., to keep making the podcast and making the podcast better. I also have an Amazon wish list of things to help me out with the Dangerous History podcast and related productions that I put in the show notes of episodes. It's mostly research materials, but also there's some stuff in there, hardware for audiovisual production, etc. So if you want to order me something off there, that also helps out. Your support and contributions are what keeps this thing going and keeps me doing the work that I do. So I hope that you will consider helping out. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast. As always, doing my best to help you learn the past, understand the present, and prepare for the future. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. 
Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live.